So welcome to the Religions and Practice of Peace uh, Colloquium. I'm David Hampton, Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. Thank you for joining us for tonight's RPP Colloquium, uh, a special conversation which we planned quite a, wh a while ago um, uh, on the subject of cultivating community across divides in the United States, uh, relationship building as a spiritual practice. I'd like to thank our panelists, um, uh, Mr. Bartholomew, um, uh, Liz Rakaya Lee Hood, um, uh, Hugh Doherty, uh, Stephanie Paulsell, and Matthew Potts. Uh, I'd like to thank the members of the RPP Working Group and all of you in attendance for being with us tonight on this really very um, important and somber occasion. I'd also like to express our gratitude to the El Hebrew Foundation for its support of our RPP and to um, uh, Karen and Al Budney for their generosity too, which enables us to um, uh, put on our program. We pondered quite a bit on what topic to feature at tonight's session, coming just two days after the US presidential election, on the heels of a very long and exceedingly contentious and divisive campaign season. We anticipated um, that a great need at this moment would be to create a space where for these couple of hours at least that we have together, we can take a break from the conflict and negativity and support one another's um, healing and well-being by focusing on constructive recommendations for how we can move forward to begin repairing the rifts in our country. And in particular, the um, uh, spiritual work and spiritual resources that this will require uh, of us. The um, unanticipated result of the election, um, at least for many of us, and the very real shock and uh, distress and sense of uncertainty that many are feeling, have made it all the more important for us to make time and space um, for, for what we're doing tonight. <coughs> We knew that whatever the outcome of the election, um, a crucial question for all of us in the United States from this point forward is how we can cultivate a sense of community across divides, be they political, racial, socioeconomic, cultural, or religious in nature. While many of the divisions that have been manifesting themselves in ever louder and more troubling ways of late have deep roots in our country's history, as you know. Others have come to the fore in connection with changing conditions and major events, both domestic and global. Though efforts to solve these incredibly complex problems will certainly require a multifaceted approach at many different levels, it's difficult to see how we will be able to move toward healing, uh, reconciliation, and the kind of cooperation required to address the urgent issues confronting our nation and our world, if we don't or can't find ways to build bridges across our divides at a grassroots, community to community, person to person, and heart to heart level. A healthy democracy hinges upon our willingness and our capacity to be in constructive relationship with one another despite our differences. As I know well from personal experience in my native Northern Ireland, and as, as Hugh on our panel knows also, and to the extent that our human-to-human -human connections at the grassroots level are weak, it leaves us especially vulnerable to the politics of antagonism, fear, demonization, and manipulation with potentially disastrous consequences. 
Here in America, now more than ever, reviving the art of cultivating community across divides is a pressing imperative in which each and every one of us has a major stake as well as a vital role and a real responsibility to play. In a sermon at Memorial Church last fall, I discussed peacemaking as a spiritual discipline or as a way of being. The spiritual or even humanist dimensions of relationship building across divides and the spiritual resources that can support us in this is an aspect too rarely discussed. Indeed, our failure to give sufficient attention to this in our educational institutions and the way we prepare leaders in our country may be one factor that has contributed to our divisions. So we're grateful for this opportunity to explore um, these issues with all of you here tonight. This is, the specific questions we'll explore are, what creative ideas do you have for grassroots relationship building across divides in this country? What inner and outer work will this relationship building demand of us? What wisdom from our spiritual and cultural traditions and what historical precedents from the United States and beyond can inspire and empower us in these activities? What roles might our religious communities play in uh, the tasks in front of us? To support our purpose for tonight, we're departing from our usual approach in a few ways and would like to make a special request of everyone here. First, although we do not underestimate the depth of fear and anxiety that many of you are feeling right now, our purpose is to have a forward-looking conversation, to brainstorm constructive ideas, and this will mean setting aside the urge that many of us may feel to rehash the negativity of recent months or to engage in critiques about the election and the candidates. So let's try to model the change we want to see in our country. Second, we felt this would be a fitting moment to reflect together as a community at the Divinity School. So rather than inviting outside speakers, we've asked some faculty and alumni of Harvard Divinity School and from our own RPP working group to open our conversation by offering a few reflections on our topic, whether from the religious traditions they study, the spiritual communities in which they've been engaged, or from their personal experiences. Rather than serving as experts who have the answers, who does? Their brief comments are intended simply to start off and stimulate our constructive brainstorming as a larger group and community. Third, the same questions that we've posed to the panelists, we've also posed in advance to the faculty, fellows, alums, and graduate students in the RPP working group. And in the second part of the program, we'll call on them to share their reflections and recommendations with us as well. After that, we very much look forward to hearing from others of you attending. We know many of you have been involved in relationship building across divides in various settings and in reflecting on its spiritual and religious dimensions. And we're grateful that you're here with us to be part of tonight's conversation, helping us along. So what I'd like to do now is just, uh, briefly to introduce our uh, five panelists, and then um, um, uh, we will uh, uh, ask them to speak in the order that we're, that we're in, even though I'm introducing by um, um, alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. um, Melissa Bartholomew 
is a lawyer and a Christian minister who is passionate about the work of racial justice and healing. In May 2015, she received her MDiv from Harvard Divinity School, where she was named a Presidential Scholar upon admission. <clears throat> her classmates voted for her to deliver the 2015 Harvard Divinity School commencement address. In January 2015, Melissa co-founded the Harvard Divinity School Racial Justice and Healing Initiative student group. While in Divinity School, she worked with the Racial Reconciliation and Healing Program at the Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center in Jamaica Plain. And she also served as a chaplain intern at Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge. Prior to becoming a minister, Melissa practiced public interest law for 10 years in Seattle, serving the majority of that time as an assistant attorney general. She is also a certified mediator and served as the dependency mediator for King County Superior Court in Seattle. Melissa is currently pursuing a combined Masters of Social Work PhD at Boston College School of Social Work. Her research will examine forgiveness and faith as interventions for healing, uh, as interventions for healing the descendants of Africans who were enslaved in America from the, un from the effects of untreated generational racial trauma. Um, Melissa, welcome. Um, we, we, we seem to be um, employing you in ever more demanding <laughs> roles, uh, so um, we should uh, set aside a huge chunk of our budget. Um, so thank you. Um, Liz Rukaya Lee Hood is known to all of us, has been a research associate for religions and the practice of peace since our, our early efforts at Harvard Divinity School to envision the initiative, um, uh, she really has been the initiative in, in, uh, in uh, remarkable ways. She's a PhD candidate in the study of religion and Islam in the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Her research focuses on Islamic devotional life, uh, early and classical literature and spiritual ethics. She graduated from Harvard Radcliffe College, magna cum laude, and Phi Beta Kappa in social studies, women's studies, and Chinese, and from the Master of Theological Studies program at the Divinity School in Islamic Studies in Arabic. She co-translated selections of Quranic uh, commentary for an anthology of Quranic commentaries, volume one, on the nature of the divine, published by OUP. She's the co-founder and director of the first discussion and support group for multiracial students at Harvard College and a former intern at the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. Liz has worked in civil rights law, um, intercultural skills coaching, culturally sensitive hospital and end-of-life care, and mediation, co-designing the first mediation train, training tailored for divinity schools for the Harvard Mediation Program at Harvard Law School. She's been a consultant trainer with the Public Conversations Project, a non, uh, now Essential Partners, a non-profit working domestically and internationally to transform conflict through constructive dialogue. Engaged with diverse Muslim communities for over three decades, she's writing her doctoral dissertation on early and classical Islamic teaching on the relationship between spiritual ethical formation and intimacy with the divine. Uh, Liz, welcome. Hugh Doherty, <clears throat> who speaks with a similar accent to someone else speaking at the moment, um, raised in Northern Ireland, um, teaches leadership at Harvard's uh, JFK School of Government, and is a senior associate with Cambridge Leadership Associates. 
He has taught leadership and conflict resolution at the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, the McGregor Burns Academy of Leadership at uh, University of Maryland, where he directed the Ireland-US public leadership program for emerging leaders from all the political parties in Ireland. In Northern Ireland, he directed the Intergroup Relations Project, an initiative bringing together political and community leaders in Ireland to establish protocols for political dialogue. He has consulted extensively with a wide variety of clients, including the Irish Civil Service, the American Leadership Forum, the Episcopalian Clergy Initiative Program, the National Conservation Leadership Institute, and the Mohawk Community Leadership Program in Canada. He's also consulted widely abroad in Bosnia, Croatia, and Cyprus, and has addressed the UN Global Forum on Reinventing Government. He's worked with the government of Nepal in negotiation and leadership, and is a third party member of an American-Turkish dialogue process. Um, so he's a widely um, um, experienced uh, person in these uh, areas. He earned an MA, an MED, and a, 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 a DED from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Professor Stephanie Paulsell is a Susan Shawcross Swartz Professor of the Practice of Christian Studies here at HDS. Before coming to Harvard, she served as Director of Ministry Studies and Senior Lecturer in Religion and Literature at the University of Chicago Divinity School, our rivals. <laughs> Professor Paulsell studies the points of intersection between intellectual work and spiritual practice, between the academic study of religion and the practices of ministry and between the contemplative and active dimensions of the vocations of minister and teacher. She's the author of Honouring the Body, Meditations on a Christian Practice, and co-editor of the Scope of RR, The Vocation of the Theological Teacher. Her current research is on Virginia Woolf and religion, and she's also an ordained minister in the um, uh, Disciples of Christ. Finally, um, Matthew Parks is Assistant Professor of Ministry Studies. He joined the faculty at HDS in 2013. He studies the theology and practices of Christian communities with a focus on the relationship among narrative, liturgy, and ethics. In particular, he seeks to analyze and interpret Christian sacramental practices while employing the resources of literature, literary theory, and Christian theology. His recent book, Cormac McCarthy and the Science of Sacrament, Literature, Theology, and the Moral of Stories, and covers in contemporary fiction a moral framework that is deeply indebted to traditions of Christian sacramental theology. His next book project will examine theories of sacrifice in postmodernity alongside Christian understandings of the atonement and recent American fiction. Other interests include theologies of revelation, theories of narrative, the ethics of forgiveness and reconciliation, and contemporary Anglican theology and preaching. He's an ordained priest in the Episcopal Church and has served several parishes in Massachusetts. So thank you all of you for coming. Um, I will now put my Irish accent to sleep for a while um, and give you a break. So our panelists will, um, will uh, speak in the order down the line, and I will get right out of the way. Stephanie, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, good evening, and thank you so much for the invitation to be here, and it's great to be here with um, these good folks. Um, the Dean has asked us to look forward and not to rehash. Um, I have to admit that t two days after, where are we? What's today? Thursday. The election happened Tuesday. Um, Spiritual practice is just about my favorite topic to talk about and think about, but I feel like I can't quite get there without a little rehashing. Um, so forgive me, but um, 
I, uh, like a lot of us, I'm still trying to figure out what has just happened and what we're called to in this moment. Um, for those of you who are in the class, in the colloquium, um, Liz asked us to assign an essay. Um, and the essay that I assigned was um, an essay by Martin Luther King Jr. called The World House. Um, an essay he published in a book called Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community in 1967, less than a year before a white supremacist assassinated him. And in the essay, he writes that racism might well be the corrosive evil that will bring down the curtain on Western civilization. The evil of racism has corroded every presidential election in my lifetime. What's different about the campaign just ended, I think, is not that it was racist, but how explicitly racist it was. Rather than the coded language and the dog whistles of other elections I can remember, a near constant assault on human dignity flooded into our public and private spaces undisguised. Trump's campaign lifted some ideas into the mainstream that seemed to me to present particular difficulties for cultivating relationship and community across political divides. First of all, a worldview of white supremacy that we have always had with us in this nation, but that now has found a powerful public platform. And secondly, and relatedly, a vision of our national life and the life of our nation in the world as a zero-sum game um, with winners and losers. This view of life says that if our society tries to create more space, for more people to flourish, then we and our children are going to lose out. Everyone can't succeed, so we need to hang on to our privilege at all costs. The difficulty I think this has given us for cultivating community across political divides is that this election certainly surfaced genuine economic despair. Um, that it made it visible. Um, but now that despair has attached itself and has bound itself up with these worldviews. Um, and so the question I have, one of the questions I have for us tonight is how do we respond to that despair while refusing those worldviews? The most urgent thing that's, to me that seems that we need to do is to support and protect those who are made most vulnerable by the elevation of these ideologies into the mainstream. As individuals, as communities, as a society, we need to support and protect undocumented people, including the undocumented students in this university, our students. Muslims, we are already hearing about acts of violence against Muslims in the wake of Trump's victory by people who feel empowered by that victory. African Americans, in my home state of North Carolina, the Ku Klux Klan is planning a victory parade. They believe Trump's victory is theirs. And for-profit prisons, which have preyed upon African Americans, are apparently one of the big winners in the current stock market rally. Investors are already lining up in the hopes of making big money 
from the incarceration of our fellow citizens. LGBTQ people whose gains over the last several years are now threatened, and women whose bodies were regularly objectified by the president-elect on the campaign trail to say nothing of the 2005 recorded conversation of him bragging about sexually assaulting women. 66% of white women voted for Donald Trump, but that's no protection. All of these already vulnerable lives just got more vulnerable. Supporting and protecting people whose human dignity and bodily safety is under assault is our first responsibility. It's what must undergird our work to build relationships across divides. It must be a central reason for that work. It must be a spiritual practice itself. Now, the fact that white supremacy and zero, the zero-sum politics of resentment have found such a visible place in our culture is the result of many failures which belong to many people, including me. There's the failure of the Democratic Party. Matt Potts reminded me today that a lot of working-class white people voted for Obama in 2012 and have now voted for Trump in 2016. So there was an opportunity for relationship for learning from each other, and we let it slip away. A failure of education, including a failure of colleges and universities to fail to broaden their reach, our reach, and a failure of Christian communities. 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in spite of the fact that he was visibly sowing hatred into the fabric of the country even though the ideology of white supremacy and the politics of resentment are, by any measure, at odds with the teachings of Jesus. 81% is a very high number. As a Christian, as a minister, as a writer, and as a teacher, I need to consider my part in this failure. And that probably gets me around to the topic of this panel relationship building across political divides, because I haven't done that in the way I ought to have done. I won't lie and tell you that I am there yet, that I'm ready to reach out and cultivate relationships across the political divide, and I've struggled with that today as I've tried to prepare for this panel. Fortunately, in what now seems a more innocent time before Tuesday night, I assigned this wonderful essay by Martin Luther King Jr. Let him take the lead in the constructive part of these remarks and ask him to suggest where we might go next. We have ancient habits to deal with, he wrote in 1967, vast structures of power, indescribably complicated problems to solve. King makes a lot of challenging suggestions in this essay about how we might begin that work. Undertake the serious study of and experimentation with nonviolence. Stay awake through these periods of social change. Not enough people stay awake, he says, during periods of social change. And do the internal work that is necessary to cultivate our souls because we're not going to suddenly know how to transform our society 
unless we, unless we have tried to transform ourselves. But the one absolute necessity for human survival, King argues towards the end of that essay, is love. Now King, I'm sure, knew that some people would dismiss love as too weak a response to unchecked power. So he made himself clear. When I speak of love, he wrote, in the year before he was murdered, I am speaking of that force which all the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. For King, love was not sentimental. It was a force. And without it, he believed, the juggernaut of racism, poverty, and war was going to plow our civilization under. Can we attach ourselves to this vital force as we try to move forward as a nation? Only, I think, if we understand love in the unsentimental way that King did, as a force with the power to transform. Dostoevsky once wrote that love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in practice is what King is talking about, and it includes our resistance to what is wrong and our embrace of what is good. It includes the work we do to transform ourselves and the work we do to transform our communities. It includes the hard work of encountering each other across all that divides us. It includes cultivating our attention to the unknown in each other, to resist summing each other up, to leave room for each other to change. And this week, it also includes our anger and our grief. Thank you all for being here tonight, and thank you for uh, coming to share your thoughts with us and to listen to the thoughts we have. Um, when I was asked to participate in this panel a few weeks ago and asked to give this group in the center a reading assignment, um, I, I imagined a different outcome. Um, and so I think I might assign a different reading now. I'll talk about those in a second. Um, uh, and I, I think that one thing I want to do during the, the time that I have for my remarks, and maybe in, as we discuss further later on tonight, is, is to reverse the question a little bit, to, um, to ask not, or as, as a way of asking the question about community building and relationship building as a spiritual practice, rather than ask myself, as I think Stephanie has also prodded us to ask, um, what spiritual practices will be required to build community in the days to come? And as I said, I'm, I think like many of us here, I've been reeling. I didn't sleep. I haven't slept a lot the last couple of days. I've been reeling. Our classes, the classes I held, have been emotional and difficult. And um, and I didn't really know what I was going to say <laughs> tonight until about what 70 minutes ago. Um, actually, it was since classes. Remember this. Um, Oh, the last time I cried after an election. 
was in 2008, uh, and I was happy <laughs> because because Barack Obama had won. And I remember I came to the school as a student. I was a first-year PhD student, and I sat in Ron Thiemann's class, the former dean and my advisor here, and um, and he cried too. And uh, I can't believe it's only been eight years. And I cried again uh, for a different reason. And I think that actually this is one of the spiritual practices that we need to cultivate. I, I think grief is a spiritual practice we need to cultivate. And I think that I don't mean, I mean, I, I mean that seriously. I think, as I've said in both my classes, I think people are going to die because of this election. And so that grief is real. Uh, there is already violence, as you know, if you're following Sean King's Twitter feed, documented violence in our country. Uh, already today among my students who spoke about it in class. Um, so I think grief is appropriate, but I also think grief is a spiritual practice. And I know that the spiritual practice of grief takes different forms in different places and among different people. I have a, a good friend, one of my closest friends here at Harvard who is sitting Shiva this week. Um, but I'm gonna tell you what I was thinking of today. My mom is from Japan and uh, her mother died in 1975. And she went back to Japan. She had a very fraught relationship with her mother, and they were estranged for many years. And, when my, and then my mom came to America and didn't see her for many, many years. Um, and nothing was resolved when my grandmother died. And, and my mom went back to Japan. And part of the funerary rites of the, of the Jodo Shinshu Shu, uh, sect, of which she is a part, um, is cremation of the remains. And then the family, in order of kind of seniority, comes forward with these big ivory chopsticks and remove the bones from the remains. And my, my mother said that the worst moment of her life was walking up to his remains and uh, picking up her mother's bones because, because the reality of what was in front of her. There was no illusion. It was ugly and awful and final. And she was forced to confront it seriously in that moment. So the reading I assigned to you, to you um, was an, a chapter from a book uh, called Beyond the Mushroom Cloud by a Japanese author, Yuki Miyamoto. And uh, she's writing about, um, so this, the spiritual practices of, of, um, of anti-nuclear weapon advocates in Japan, and especially of Hibakusha, who were victims of radiation and the bombing, atomic bombing. And one of the people she references is this Japanese philosopher named uh, Sueki, Sueki Fumihiko. And the reason is interesting, and the reason I assigned this to you when I thought what I would be talking to you about was reaching across the political divide to white working class voters, who I feel like I cannot relate to, to Christian evangelicals, who, who are also Christians, but who I cannot relate to. I'm from Michigan, to Michiganders, who voted for Trump and who I grew up with and who I feel like I cannot relate to. The reason I, talk, I assigned this, this reading is because Sueki says that the way we learn to relate to others is, is through relating to the dead. And he's rooting this in Japanese cultural practices. I mean, religion is a complicated thing in Japan. It may not even be the right word for what goes on in Japan. It's the word we use. But um, reverence for uh, devotion to the dead in Japan is, is commonplace, is nearly universal, I think, I could probably say. And what Suwiki says is that, you know, the problem with ethics, the problem we think about relationships is that the other is always other. They're always different than us. I mean, irreducibly particular. And there's no way I can really understand them without imposing some of my, other under, my own 
self upon them, without subsuming them into myself in some way, Swiggy says. And he says, the real challenge of ethics is to let the other be other. And he says, that is, that is always the case when we relate to the dead. The dead are entirely unrelatable because they are dead. And so the practice of relating to them allows them to be other in a way that we cannot fix and is a spiritual practice that we can cultivate to learn to relate to others who are different from us. And I was thinking when I wrote this, when I assigned this to you, that oh, here's, here's a way, right? Here's a way to think about how do we relate to people we cannot imagine relations with. And maybe cultivating a relationship with the dead is one way. And, and I did that for another reason. Um, because the other reading I recommended to you, right? I couldn't limit it to two. And the recommended reading is the one I would assign to you now is the introduction to Judith Butler's book, Frames of War, where she talks about grievable lives, right? Lives that matter are ones that we can grieve over, that we can imagine grieving over. Um, and the other thing about paying attention to the dead means saying that those we have lost matter. That's saying that, that those who have died matter. Um, and so not only is it a way to cultivate relationship, relationships with others, it is also a way to assert, to insist that these things matter, that these lives matter. Um, and in the wake of, I think, our grief, my grief after this election, I think that is our, the primary task. I think that is the spiritual practice that will be required. Uh, it will be grieving in such a way as to signal what matters. And I, like, like uh, Stephanie, I think, uh, I, I feel real personal responsibility in this case. I, 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 uh, I co-pastor at church. I'm the assistant pastor at a church. Um, and I, as I told both my classes the last two days, I, I was patting myself on the back because I was preaching about politics. I, you know, the last two years, I, I talked about refugees, and I talked about immigration, and I talked about um, Black Lives Mattering, right? But there's something I didn't say. I didn't mention Donald Trump, because I didn't want to alienate people. I, I wanted to be a little bit more polite. I want to be a little bit prettier, because it's church, right? Things aren't supposed to be ugly in church. Um, and I think that my responsibility now is to speak honestly and frankly about this ugliness to, if you will, to reach into these ashes and draw up bones and show them to the people I'm meant to lead and say, this is what is lost, this is what is dying, this is what is dead. Uh, and in saying that, to insist that it matters. Um, so I don't know how much of a way forward that is, but it's the only way forward I see, at least for myself at this point, and it's the spiritual practice that um, that I've turned my attention to and that I, I plan to uh, take up more rigorously and more seriously in the days to come than I have in the days that have passed. Hi, everyone. I also want to add my thanks to the team that put this evening together that allows us to be here together. Uh, this forum, so thank, thank you very much. Um, the test tonight is when you listen to my accent and you compare it with David's, is to figure out which tribe who belongs to, which tribe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and in a sense, that's what I, I in the few minutes I have, I'd like. That's what I'd like to uh, to reflect on. Seems to me to heal, you know, the the, the terrible polarization that's in now so vivid in this the United States. You know, it's it's. Uh, that polarization is very familiar to David and I. Growing up, I grew up in the Catholic community in Northern Ireland, and he grew up in Protestant community. And we now have peace walls that divide communities in, in Belfast, 20 feet high peace walls with barbed wire on the top that, that keep us apart. And so what I'd like to offer for consideration tonight to this discussion is it's just it's one hypothesis is that if we're going to, un to, to heal from polarization, we need to get to the roots of the matter. What is it that, at the core, that separates? And I think this is a very practical question, but it's also deeply spiritual. And for me, it's captured in, uh, in the, uh, one of the Upanishads, in the Hindu tradition. And the quote is, wherever there is another, fear arises. Wherever there is another, fear arises. And, and how do we make sense of that? Uh, and to me, you know, there is, there is something at the core of, uh, of, of our nature that in order to create identity, create our group identity, we actually create the enemy. We need the enemy in a sense in order to know who we are. I grew up, you know, being being Irish and Catholic because we weren't one of them, you know. And, and to me, this there's something at the core of this, how we create separation, even though all the great spiritual traditions, you know, communicate that we're one. There's one, one human family. And we're, we all know this, right? In our deepest heart of hearts, we know this. And yet, somehow, you know, we separate. And I remember being confronted with this very, very, you know, directly early on in my life in, in uh, Ireland. I was a program director in a peace and reconciliation center. And we started to bring Protestant and Catholic together. And, you know, that was hard enough. And then we realized that this conflict, you know, this set of relationships, this polarization in this community really isn't going to be solved internally because What's happening in Northern Ireland is just one symptom of this deeper polarization between England and Ireland, centuries old. And so we figured, well, let's start bringing Englishmen and Irishmen together because it's, it's the men who are doing the killing. And so I, it, I, I mean, as I speak, I, I remember vividly in the cells of my body the first workshop we had where we had 15 Englishmen and 15 Irishmen. And we started to, you know, share stories. And one of these Englishmen started to speak, and he spoke with a BBC accent. Hello, John, John Goodshare, you know, chappies, you know? <laughs> Prince Charles. <laughs> I, hope that, I, I hope there's no English people in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, on the one hand, it's like, Everything that I, in my community what we'd grown up with was like this, this voice and what it represented, this accent, you know. And part of it, part of you wanted to kill. You just want to kill. 
The other part wanted to completely disappear. So this sort of sense of being utterly intimidated by, by what that voice represented in terms of power and so on. But as he, as he spoke and told the story, he, he told the story of how in the, the English school system, the English public school system, which are really private schools, young boys at the age of like eight, nine would be plucked from their families and they're put in these schools. And then they were systematically oppressed by the older boys. You know, they were abused. And you can imagine how this works. You come in at eight, but then you get to be nine and there's someone at eight coming underneath, and so on. And so you, you, know, you get conditioned into that system of, of passing on that abuse in the hierarchy. And then these, boy, these were the boys who would go to places like Eton and Oxford, and then eventually into positions of authority in the English colonies in, in uh, India and uh, Africa. And they were able to occupy these positions of authority and be immune to the consequences, be immune to the suffering and to the poverty around them because they've been so brutalized and so abused in their own emotional being. And this was like the, you know, the sort of the hidden curriculum, if you like, the hidden purpose of this system. Now, and as he's telling this story, you know, and, and what it was like in that system, he starts to weep. And this was for me like, no one prepared me for this moment. Because I had been to uh, a Catholic boarding school in Ireland, boys boarding school, where every teacher had a leather strap with a piece of lead inside it. Hard to imagine, you know, this is, this is just a generation ago. And so I, I, I knew about this, this abuse also. And so, so here's this moment where here's this man, he represents everything but the enemy, you know, my culture. And yet he's crying. And one, one choice you have in these moments, you see, is in order to keep your own worldview intact, is to shut that down, shut him, shut him down, not to be touched by his story. You know. The cost for that is devastating. The cost for that is you kill off your own emotional being. The other possibility is, which happened to me, was I was, you know, I was moved by his story. And then, then who are you? Then you sort of, suddenly, this world that you've occupied, and, you know, they're the enemy, and we're Irish, and they're innocent, they're to blame for everything that's happened here, and all of that worldview, that, all, that, all the sense of who we are, our identity, is suddenly not, it's, it's, it's uh, there's this equilibrium, it's, it's no longer solid, you know? It's shaken. And that's a profound moment, you know? And you're there initially alone you know, with that. And your own group doesn't want you out there. And they're gonna suck you back in quickly to keep, keep the boundaries of identity fixed, keep the worldview fixed, you know? Um, so it was that, that, that vivid sort of existential moment in my life that I sort of 
that nothing had prepared me for, but I, as I began to you know, allow that into my being and begin to reflect on it, uh, began to became aware, you know, there is a paradox about it, what I call the paradox of identity. And which it, it is that in this sort of, this need to have another in order to know who we are, that then in, in, in this sort of tribal identity stuff, we end up believing that the very thing we need to protect for our survival, you know, which is identity, the, the paradox that's, that that attachment is the very thing we need to sacrifice in order to be free. It's a you know, terrible bind. Uh, and so, you know, I'm suggesting that at least this is one aspect, one aspect of, that's the core of this, why human beings, why we uh, separate, separate, even though we all espouse oneness, all rivers flow to the one sea, you know, so on and so on, yet we, yet we separate. And so uh, I think if to, to, to um, think about how, how can we begin to think about healing? I think we have to, one, one possibility might be that, you know, the, the church, the various religious traditions somehow can come together in this moment and create forums where, you know, we can begin to explore all of this and to, to, ex to explore these issues of identity and separateness and the need for the other as an enemy. Um, maybe it's a moment where globally somehow the great traditions can, can come together and design some sort of process of a, a, global, uh, a global peace education curriculum that could be through every Hindu school, Buddhist school, Christian, you know, somehow that's based in this recognition of oneness before we separate. And in the, in the world in which I operate, in you know, this conflict resolution world, we also failed. We're clearly, you know, failing. Big time. And so I think, like, maybe this is a moment again for those of us, people in that world, to come together and figure out there's all these different approaches to conflict resolution and models, and yet, what have they, what are they providing? You know? And, and to look at ourselves in the mirror, but okay, how, what, how can we come together and can we understand this dynamics of enmity and polarization and, and, and what can we bring from these fields of all these various approaches of mediation, negotiation, what can we bring now that will make a difference? And um, so I think, you know, I, last night I was in my yoga class and it was the same sense of people were very quiet. And there's a sense, a palpable sense of shock and grief in the room. And uh, there was about 20 people in the, in, in the class, you know. And, and the wonderful thing, what happened was our yoga teacher, she sort of, she, she, she was appreciative of what was happening and so she said, I'd like to read you a poem. And she brought out a Rumi 
poem. And uh, I'd like to share that with you. A night full of talking that hurts. My worst held back secrets. Everything has to do with loving and not loving. This night will pass. Then we have work to do. I would love to begin my uh, remarks with a moment of silence. So anyone who would like to join me in just closing their eyes and being still and letting what we've heard settle into our bodies. As we breathe, grateful for the blessing of being in community this evening with all of you. I'm grateful for um, the invitation from Liz and from Dean Hempton and grateful for the company in which I'm amongst and uh, I also struggled with what to say and prayed throughout the day for the Holy Spirit's guidance and I'm in complete agreement about the need for space for lament and grief to balance our hope and our trajectory forward. So I honor that. I'm in complete agreement about the need to remember our past and get to the root of this dilemma that this country has been struggling with since its inception. So I'm grateful for the presence of spirit and I'm grateful for the presence of my ancestors and all of our ancestors. I am the descendant of Africans who were enslaved in this country, who were brought here centuries ago to labor for free. And I would like to begin with a story about my ancestors. And I was blessed last night to be with a group of, of uh, beautiful people at the Ed School, so if you were here, if you were there with me, you're going to hear the story again. I am blessed to have uh, a grandfather who is uh, 96 years old. He is also a minister. His name is Marcus Garvey Wood. And my grandfather is uh, one of, of seven siblings. He had six uh, brothers. His family grew up in a small town in Virginia. My grandfather's grandparents were enslaved Africans, and their names were Susan and Moses Wood. 
My grandparents, my family, the Wood family, for the last 80 plus years has been gathering for homecoming, their family reunion, every summer, the third Sunday or the third weekend in August, every year. And they go home to the home place, the place where they grew up, the place uh, that is a couple of uh, blocks away from the plantation where Susan and Moses Wood were enslaved. So I remember uh, over the course of my childhood and uh, into adulthood and now as uh, I have my own family, this homecoming being a part of my summer, periodically. And the last few years, it's been more consistent. Two years ago, when I took my family, my husband and our daughter, we were blessed to take an excursion after breakfast with my cousin, who took a few of us to the plantation where our grandparents were enslaved. And it was the summer before I began my uh, journey at Boston College with my focus on racial trauma and generational trauma. And prior to going to the plantation, I had been talking to my cousins um, since getting there, getting to Virginia, about the work I was about to embark on, the importance of generational trauma and the trauma that's embedded in us that's been passed down through generations through our ancestors racial trauma in particular. And uh, so when we went to the plantation, I remember clearly as we stood on the grounds where my grandparents were enslaved, where they were not in control of their bodies, where other people owned them, where they were forced to labor. My ancestors spoke to me clearly and reminded me of what I already knew, but they amplified it. And they said, while you do have generational trauma in your body, the racial trauma in your DNA that has been passed down, don't forget that you also carry the generational hope, the generational faith, and that is what grounds you, and that is what has produced you. The generational love. You are a byproduct of the generational love that they embody. So I took that story, that memory, that, uh, that call with me to my program, and it's been with me, and it's with me, and it's what has sustained me since Tuesday. And it's the story I reminded my daughter of in the morning when I woke her up on Wednesday, and the first thing she asked me was, who won? And I told her, and I saw her face look a little concerned. And I said, it's going to be OK. It's going to be OK, baby. And she said, why are you smiling? I said, because I have faith. And I reminded her of the story of Grandpa Susan, Grandpa Moses and Grandma Susan and our time on the plantation. So I offer that as. Uh, my purpose is twofold. One, because I believe a spiritual practice that we must engage in in this country is a practice of remembering. Because we forget. Some of us never knew. Some of us haven't learned. Our education system has not been the best in terms of educating our children about our history and our country's inception. 
But we must look back and we must engage in remembering the painful past as a spiritual practice. And then we also must remember how we made it through. So I look back as I lament and I honor my grief and my pain. But my looking back also gives me the strength to look forward because of my great-great-grandparents who through their faith and their love and their hope and their forgiveness that they embodied were able to transcend the greatest evil that we can imagine, being enslaved. And I have stories from my grandfather about their abundant faith and their joy for God, their love for God, their intimacy with Christ that sustained them. So our spiritual practices are a must for us to get through and to continue to have the vision because my grandparents, through their practices, through their faith, not only were able to endure, but they were able to have perspective and vision to know that I would be here today. So I offer remembering as a spiritual practice. I also offer the work of eradicating racism as a spiritual practice <clears throat> and being very clear about what the work is. I'm so grateful that uh, Professor Polzell mentioned white supremacy the work of dismantling white supremacy is a spiritual practice. I'm blessed to be a part of a congregation, Old Cambridge Baptist Church, right here in Harvard Square, um, that has dedicated this year for that spiritual focus, the work of dismantling white supremacy. It's the internal focus of our church all year. It is a necessity for us to look inward at the ways in which racism, we have internalized racial oppression, superiority, inferiority and how it's causing destructive destruction on our minds, our bodies, and our spirits. The last thing I'll say, I uh, offered the students um, two pieces. One, a chapter from Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman, the chapter on love, because love, as we've heard through Dr. King's words, is the only way and it is the strongest force. I also offered the article that ta Coates wrote a couple of years ago called The Case for Reparations because of the need for historical memory and to understand the context, the current context, some of our contemporary challenges rooted in history that we don't know about. I'd like this evening to, as a way of offering a practical example of uh, practices from history, um, one of the civil rights organizations um, that I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with was uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. And you may not know that the founding mother of SNCC was a woman named Ella Baker. And I was led to her, this book about her a couple of days ago, and I just, I've been carrying it with me. Uh, Ella Baker was one of the unsung heroes of the movement. And she urged the students to mobilize independently of the other civil rights organizations to organize themselves. And their statement of purpose is infused with love. I just want to read a couple of bits from it. Love is the central motif of nonviolence. Such love goes to the extreme 
It remains loving and forgiving, even in the midst of hostility. It matches the capacity of evil to inflict suffering with an even more enduring capacity to absorb evil, all the while persisting in love. By appealing to conscience and standing on the moral nature of human existence, nonviolence nurtures the atmosphere in which reconciliation and justice become actual possibilities. So our work is to detoxify the atmosphere through building connect connections with each other across all divides, detoxifying the atmosphere so that justice and healing can emerge. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of God, the all-merciful, the all-compassionate. Um, thank you so much for all your contributions. Um, very grateful and it's helped me to process and um, work on the ongoing work of healing and also envisioning and thinking deeply about this. So extremely grateful. Thank you. I think I'll preface what I'm going to say, which I also prepared today, um, by saying that I think one reason that I take such an interest in this topic and is that for me it's, it's been a reality in my life from the beginning, really. Um, on my dad's side of the family, uh, his ancestors are from England, later Ireland, but are, have been here since before the American Revolution, down south in North Carolina and Virginia. Um, and my, on my mom's side, my grandparents are immigrants from China. That's just my grandparents, and I grew up with them in the same household, and they were a big influence on me. They didn't speak English that well and had a laundry in which my mother and her siblings grew up here in Boston. So my dad grew up at a time um, when things were still segregated and that was the norm for my family, you know, some of my family members there. And I think um, many of us, we went through a moment as children, having been brought up here, um, uh, multiracial with immigrant relatives, of, um, of becoming aware of this attitude among the adults, um, you know. We want to invite a friend into the yard and we're not allowed to, etc. So it's a very live issue for me. It remains that way um, because I have family members, close family members all across the political spectrum. And I have to say that throughout all of this, I'm really grateful to be part of our initiative. And thank you, Dean Hampton and everybody who's part of it. And also even to have had this assignment because for me, it really made me kind of dig deep and say, okay, you know, um, how am I dealing with this? Um, because I think my ideal um, and a bit of what I'll share about the background on that is to be able to um, have a feeling of brotherhood and sisterhood across divides and be able to reach out and have that perspective. I think um, to be able to have kind of a multi-layered perspective where it can be a both and, it's not an either or. Um, that's very important. Um, so 
what I thought I would share tonight is some of the spiritual resources and spiritual practices that I've encountered in the Islamic tradition. And this is something I started learning about when I was an undergrad here at Harvard, and I was very involved, as was mentioned in the bio, in um, issues of multiracial students, racial justice, um, women's issues too, and had an activist kind of spirit, and my friends were really into that too. But one thing that concerned me a bit is something that uh, reminds me of what you were talking about, Professor O'Doherty, is that in pursuing these goals of justice, um, that there seemed to be a feeling of exacerbating that us and them kind of feeling. I mean, you look at people and you think, you know, okay, I don't know them, but I can just, you know, are they really doing as much as they could be doing, you know? Maybe they're not actively doing something, but they're kind of complacent where we all need to really be dealing with this issue, whatever it might be. And so I happen to have the good fortune to um, meet some members of the Masjid al-Qur'an community. We had been hoping that Imam Talib from that community could be here today. Um, but they're an African-American community here in Boston, actually at the mosque that Malcolm X was in um, when he was in the Nation of Islam, who had traveled a very interesting journey. They had thought a lot about the religion they had been brought up with and the way that it had been manipulated to justify their slavery and oppression. Um, but then they also embraced the Nation of Islam, which had a, um, a racialized kind of ideology of superiority and separatism. But it was as a result of encountering certain principles in the Islamic tradition once they had a chance to do that, um, that they decided rather en masse in a way that I think doesn't happen that much in history. So I find it a really fascinating example worth much more exploration they decided en masse that they were going to give up their racialized ideology. They were going to give up their ideology that they were superior. They were going to embrace a, um, a view of humankind as one, as all absolutely equal. And they were going to try to pursue social justice by modeling the change that they wished to see. And I say this because I had conversations with people where we were talking about these issues, and I expected them to be saying certain things and yet they, they were saying this, and I could tell they really meant it. Um, and I could tell they were striving to walk the walk in their ordinary ways, in their communities. And um, really for me, that opened up for me an interest in studying religion and coming here to HDS and studying Islam, because I wanted to look more deeply into what those spiritual resources were. So I thought I'd share with you a bit about that, and um, what I've chosen are things that I've found to be quite influential among Muslims, interestingly, that I've met anywhere from you know, China in the East to Morocco in the West, everywhere in between, and um, among Muslims here in the United States too. And while some of these things sound like things that we all know, I'm presenting it from the perspective of people who really make this central to their thinking, into their daily practice, into their spiritual lives, and trying to walk the walk. So it's from that angle that I thought I'd, I'd mention it. And it's been an important part of what Professor Leila Ahmed uh, has referred to as the garden variety of Islam. I like the double meaning there. 
and what Professor Ali Asani has called the silent Islam that's been quietly operative and still is, but invisible to many people in the West. So the first point is that our efforts at relationship building should start with a profound acceptance of our interdependence and the fact that we are one human family and really to um, make that something that one's reminding oneself of actively all the time. In the Quranic perspective, human unity is not just an ideal, but a metaphysical and existential fact, as it asserts that we're all created of a single soul, cut from the same divine pattern, animated by the same divine breath, and heir by birth to the same beautiful divine qualities, divine conscience, and divine grace. The Quran's injunction that we not become divided and sayings of the prophets such as that all creatures are God's family and God loves best those who are best to his family, put us all under a permanent divine mandate to seek unity and the well-being of all as our ideal. This perspective calls us to see all others first and foremost as sisters and brothers with whom we have an intrinsic spiritual connection and with whom we're mandated to strive for harmonious relationships and mutual betterment irrespective of our differences on the outside. In a wide array of Muslim cultures throughout history, these understandings have supported a cosmopolitan approach to community that I think will really be key for us here in the United States and actually around the globe if we're going to be successful in forging community across divides. These approaches reflect the Quranic view that our diversity in color, culture, and creed are a permanent feature of human life created by God specifically for the purpose of our undertaking active and continual efforts to get to know one another. People look to early precedents, such as the prophets establishing a community, an ummah, in Medina that was explicitly multi-religious and included was together with the local Jews, and his inviting Christians to visit from afar and welcome them to say their prayers in the mosque, his mosque. And since wisdom is recognized explicitly not to be the exclusive purview of any one group, even though the prophet was passing on the Quran in his own example, he urged people to travel even unto China in search of wisdom. So people in the forefront of spiritual ethics and spiritual psychology in the tradition, in an array of cultures and contexts, have therefore made it a priority to create contexts in which people can come together, study wisdom, establish heart-to-heart, -heart, they call it connections, across differences of race, culture, class, and caste in a spirit of sisterly and brotherly unity. One prominent example is the 12th century sage Hazrat Khaja Moinuddin Chishti, who traveled from the Islamic heartlands to India, where he created centers that bring people together from all walks of life, without asking them to relinquish their religious and cultural commitments, this was written into the founding principles, to share in devotion, wisdom, meals, service to the poor, practical efforts to help people in need, which subsequently spread all across South Asia. And people's regular, routine, positive interactions in these spaces and the center's creative messaging, beautiful messaging through devotional lyrics set to music, 
have had a profound influence on the culture of the region over the past 800 years, forming one crucial bulwark against communalism and intolerance, and still drawing many, many millions of people today. With respect to the prospects for transforming conflict, we're called to approach this with really a determined faith and a spiritual optimism. Since the tradition teaches that human hearts are, by their nature, responsive to what are termed God's beautiful divine qualities, epitomized in God's supreme qualities of grace, mercy, and compassion, repeated again and again, and, and prefacing the Quran as the lenses through which you're supposed to be reading it, which, while practiced by us mere mortals, are understood to proceed from God and indeed be the one real force in the universe with the power to overcome evil. The Quran asserts as a metaphysical and psychological law that goodness and evil are not equal. So it advises that if we intelligently repel evil with the highest qualities to which our spiritual traditions call us and persevere over time, then we can attain the one kind of peace that's truly sustainable, the peace that comes from transforming our enemies into our friends. Stories from the Prophet's life often recounted in Muslim communities paint a picture of what this might look like in practice, describing how he dealt with people who opposed him or acted ignorantly toward him by showing them kindness and respect when they were absent, asking where they were and for their well-being, um, inviting them to pray with him, welcoming them to stay in his home and serving them himself, giving them the little food available while he and his family went without, visiting them when they fell sick, standing up for their rights, even against people in his own circle, and forgiving and accepting them even when they'd attacked or even killed companions and family members dear to him. Three points that the prophet emphasized of which we might take note in our efforts are the power of our thoughts and intentions, the power of positive language in keeping with his dictum to speak a good word or keep silent. This isn't to talk against critique, certainly, but there are many, many ways to convey a critique, some more likely to be heard than others, some more likely to transform in positive ways than others. And also the power of civility, even simple things he explicitly said create love between people, like smiling and greeting everyone you meet, around which there developed an elaborate heritage of teachings about spiritual etiquette on these things. So this might sound idealistic, but if you've actually known people who really strive to put this into practice in difficult situations and then see some of the positive transformations that ensue, you'll see why people in very grave situations of strife have taken this seriously and acted upon it. In fact, this verse I mentioned about repelling evil with what's better um, is what Imam Ashafa of Nigeria told me was the specific verse that inspired him to reach out to Pastor James and to pursue, persevere in pursuing a spiritual friendship with him, even though they had been literally in mortal combat against one another, and even though in that combat, Pastor James's group had been responsible for killing Imam Ashafa's 
companions, two of his cousins, and his beloved elderly spiritual teacher. And we've seen the immense good that's ensued from this, from their doing that for them and many others. However, there are two spiritual practices upon which the Quran conditions this kind of positive transformation. One is patient perseverance. It might take a lot of patience and a long time. The other is continual self-reflection, which is stressed because the Quran teaches that our ability to see our intrinsic spiritual connection with others is caused not by something outside ourselves, but by what they refer to as the rust of negative qualities, selfishness, arrogance, greed, resentment, anger, suspicion, hastiness, etc., that we allow to accumulate in our hearts over time, covering up the divine wisdom and the divine qualities that naturally reside there in all of us. Removing this rust is critical both for our community and our spiritual well-being because it's what awakens us to be able to see our intrinsic connection to others and to God. That's why the prophet taught that our greatest enemy is the ego between our own two sides and the contemporary sage Bauma Hayadeen, who actually happened to have given a talk on this very night um, years ago when um, Boston was suffering from racial crisis due to school desegregation, he was talking on this same topic. He said, if you separate away from yourself that which separates you from your fellow human beings, then you'll never be separate from God. Now this practice of removing the rust of negativity moment by moment, breath by breath, is paired with continual efforts to cultivate the divine qualities, mercy, compassion, patience, gratitude, trust in God, etc., through constant prayer and invocation of God through God's beautiful names. And in fact, this has been so central in early and classical Islamic teachings that perhaps the most famous masterpiece on the Islamic religious sciences since the 11th century Imam al-Ghazali's Ihya al-Umadeen um, dedicates 20 of its 40 volumes to this spiritual practice alone, drawing on accumulating the teachings from the early times till the 11th century. For us, on a very practical level, this means that our first responsibility is to continually inquire into whether we're seeing our sisters and brothers um, as people for whom we want only good, and who we see that connection with, if we're seeing them with what's called the, the generous gaze that sees people in terms of their potential, not what they're presenting at the present moment, and as individuals, not as members of groups, which they say is the gaze that enabled the prophets and the spiritual masters to transform hearts and lives. Are we doing that? And if not, we know that there's something within us that needs to change. And we have to ask how we ourselves are contributing to perpetuating conflicts and divides, whether in thought, word, actions, or even by omission. This kind of continual self-reflection is equally vital when it comes to how we operate as communities and in our policies and institutions, and would certainly go a long way to helping us address the underlying issues contributing to conflict. It seems impossible to imagine how we could do that without this. 
Recent ethnographic research suggests that the cosmopolitan approach to community supported by these kinds of understandings and practices can have a dramatic impact in protecting communities against conflict when they're applied intentionally and combined with strategic measures such as highlighting positive historical memories, building cooperative economic relationships, and establishing grassroots peace committees to quell incidents of hate and violence before they spiral into something more serious. I'd recommend to everyone Anna Bigelow's study of the community, the diverse religious community in uh, Malakutla in Punjab, which by combining these things was able during India's partition in an area that was otherwise awash in turmoil and bloodshed to serve as a beacon of hope and a haven of peace for themselves and many others. So for us, I think bringing people together across differences to strategize and implement practical projects for the betterment of local communities would be one very promising way to build relationships across divides while at the same time addressing some of the underlying issues that are exacerbating conflicts. We might, for example, adopt some of the practices of the Prophet in buddying up residents and emigrants in Medina for mutual assistance, which helped to create goodwill um, and interdependence among them. Um, so in closing, I'd just like to say that I think one critical thing for us will be to have vision and um, intentionally pursue developing a more cosmopolitan culture. And that will entail anyone who sees the duty, Bawa says, if you see the duty, it's yours to do. So to reach out and make steps to do that, including in our professional, public, and educational spaces where sharing from our spiritual, cultural, and ethical traditions has been kind of banned for, for quite a while, but it's keeping us not only from knowing one another and um, helping to counter cycles of fear, but also importantly, keeping us from integrating our higher ethical values into the way we run our societies and our institutions. So I've gone on kind of long, but if I may, I'd like to close with two quotes. Um, first is from the final sermon of the 12th century sage I mentioned, Hazrat Kaja Moinuddin Chishti. It begins, love all and hate none. Mere talk of peace will avail you not. Mere talk of God and religion will not take you far. Bring out all of the latent powers of your being and reveal the full magnificence of your immortal self. Be surcharged with peace and joy and scatter them wherever you are and wherever you go. Be a blazing fire of truth. Be a beauteous blossom of love. Be a soothing balm of peace. With your spiritual light, dispel the darkness of ignorance, <coughs> dissolve the clouds of discord and war, and spread goodwill, peace, and harmony among the people. Never seek any help, charity, or favors from anybody but God. Never go to the courts of kings, but never refuse to bless and help the needy and the poor, the widow and the orphan, if they come to your door. This is your mission, to serve the people, 
carry it out dutifully and courageously. And finally, a brief quote from Bao Mahayadeen. He says, know the qualities in each one's heart and then serve him. But first, try to know your own heart. Only then can you understand the hearts of others. If each of you will open your heart, your actions, your wisdom, and your conduct, and look within, you will see that every face is your face. Every nerve is your nerve. Each drop of blood is your blood. Every sickness is your sickness. All hunger is your hunger. All poverty is your poverty. All sorrow is your sorrow. And all lives are your life. When that state develops inside you, that is God's love. This is how God does his duty. So thank you to all our panel for uh, profound and moving reflections from many different traditions and uh, perspectives which have um, uh, really enriched us uh, uh, tremendously. Um, the next part of the evening is devoted to the um, RPP working group, the people who have been reading all of the assignments that have been given and as they've changed and grown and developed. Um, so we've got, uh, uh, we're running a little late, so um, I'm going to ask um, people um, um, uh, from the RPP working group, our graduate students, faculty, fellows, alums and staff, if they would now um, either pose a question or make a comment um, and, um, and then we'll open it up after about 10 minutes or so, we'll open it up to the wider audience. If, you, if you're not in the RPP working group, please try and be patient and there will be an opportunity to speak uh, a little bit later. Um, my name is Julia Ogilvie and I'm a, a special student here. Um, as you can probably recognize, I am from Britain. <laughs> I also went to a British boarding school age nine. Um, and it wakes, makes me weep sometimes, actually, to think of that little girl that I was then. Um, and I do think it is rather a long journey from there um, to here, actually. So um, it was interesting to hear you mention it. Anyway, on behalf of um, the RPP working group, I just wanted to thank all of you, um, all the panelists, for sharing your insights, particularly on, um, well, at a time that has been so challenging. Um, <coughs> I think many of us were very moved by what you had to say and um, your willingness to share the difficulties you're going through as well. I've just got a few thoughts. Um, although I am uh, British, I do think I have some understanding of what you're going through. Um, the morning after the Brexit vote in June was an enormous shock to many people in Britain and very unexpected. It felt like such a huge challenge to our identity and to our values. And we still feel the grip of what is quite an ugly nationalism. Um, it made many of us realize just how disconnected we were from the lives of those who felt left behind by all the excitement of globalization and how little we understood their fears. At the same time, it brought out a side of Britain of which I'm quite ashamed, an intolerance for the other which had mostly been hidden. Perhaps um, I shouldn't have been surprised. My 21-year-old um, daughter, Flora, called me yesterday, having been through Brexit and now this, and I'm sure many of you will have shared this kind of experience, she expressed her fear that the world was just going to implode. Um, and I think it is so important that we have some words of hope to remind her and everyone else just how resilient we are and how much we have to continue to fight injustice wherever we see it. 
I do agree that the only place to start is with some kind of engagement with those whose values seem so different. And the question is how we do that. I was listening to someone yesterday who talked about the need for us to run towards our discomfort and to go to places well beyond here that are physically hard for us to be in. And I do agree with that. Ultimately, we do need to look for opportunities for meaningful community building and service that genuinely make a difference and build empathy and understanding. But we have to find a way through the hate first. I really do hope our spiritual traditions can help us move forward. Um, and Stephanie and Liz, you're both so right to say that we have to transform ourselves first. I just feel personally really grateful to be a part of this HDS community where I can make a start and that I have a faith that gives me hope. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Anyone else from the RPP group? Um. <coughs> While you were thinking, I, as uh, people were speaking, one thing that I did um, reflect on a little bit, and it's partly from the Northern Ireland experience that you mentioned, and, and that is just the, the, the nature of, of a competitive democracy and voting itself. <laughs> um, because um, you know, Churchill's aphorism that you know, democracy is the worst form of government except all the rest is a kind of an interesting notion. But um, you know, living in Northern Ireland, it made me think when I was watching some of the CNN coverage of the people who had voted for um, uh, Donald Trump and parts of the country. And it made me think of my own background in, um, in Northern Ireland, that it's easy to assume that a, a vote as an existential act is what we think the vote is. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, because, in other words, the, uh, because we have the person and some of the statements in our mind, that's what we think people voted for, like people voted for that. But in reality, um, um, uh, finding a vote and thinking about a vote, um, I mean, in Northern Ireland, for example, um, Hugh is right, we're different sides of a, of a great divide. Um, I could never bring myself to vote for a unionist politician in Northern Ireland. Never could vote for a unionist politician. That's the Protestant side. But it wasn't easy to vote for anybody else either. Um, um, so the exercise of voting or the election itself was always a terribly problematic time. And it was a, in Northern Ireland, it turned out to be a sectarian headcount, really. It was uh, hardly an election at all. It was just a piece of um, counting of religious heads. Um, and it reminded me, you know, when I watched some of the CNN interviews of people from the Midwest who voted for uh, Donald Trump, uh, they were voting for all kinds of things. Um, uh, 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 um, even though we might say, well, this is the person you voted for, or, or, or whatever. Um, so um, even as uh, Stephanie mentioned, you know, the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for um, Trump, and so, so how, did, um, uh, how did these evangelicals vote that way with the values they have? And, and of course, that's a complicated story, um, um, and one doesn't need to justify it, but lots of those people are voting for what they thought was going to be the future of the Supreme Court and the things they believed in. And, 
especially around abortion, uh, which then becomes an, on a hierarchy of schemes, uh, whether you agree with that issue, their views on that issue or not. So this kind of made me think that one way into healing is not to ascribe the absolute worst to the counter vote and to one's own, even though there may be occasions when that might be true. Um, but it's not always true. Um, uh, so that, I think, can make something of a difference, at least towards empathy. Um, um, I mean, I watched a 60-minute program just a, 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 a week or two ago that was based upon a community in Appalachia where people were waiting in line, a very long line, um, for the annual visit of a health clinic that simply brought basic things like dentists and opticians and blood pressure counters. And, um, and it was quite clear that these people had nothing um, and had no um, health coverage, had no resources. And the only health coverage they got was this annual visit, which they um, lined up for hours to get. And couldn't help thinking, you know, from our Harvard, Cambridge, knowledge economy bubbles, what would it feel like to be in Appalachia to wait every year in line to have a tooth pulled or, or whatever? So it, it's kind of, um, you know, I was reading just a book, you, you know, by Thomas Frank, you know, that he wrote, his first book is, was you know, Whatever Happened to Kansas, and the second one was Listen Liberal. And that Listen Liberal is an interesting book, actually, about how the world looks from the knowledge economy of Boston and how it looks from outside the knowledge economies of, of Boston. And just as I learned to appreciate how in Northern Ireland life looked different from, you know, the Protestant enclaves that I lived in, from the Catholic enclaves that you lived in, um, um, and to ascribe the worst motives to those uh, enclaves, itself is a, a spiritually damaging thing to do. It's not to justify, the, you know, I mean, you hear what I'm saying, I'm not saying that it necessarily justifies, but it, it, it helps put a little perspective on it, I think. Can I respond to that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that the d dilemma that I'm feeling is that, I mean, certainly people vote for people for all sorts of reasons, and not everybody who casts a vote or Donald Trump was signing on to a white supremacist ideology. The problem is, though, that all of those votes have now been pulled up into that. Uh, it's public presence in our culture. And, and there are real consequences from that. Um, I mean, I think you're right that the spiritual practice is to, to especially in our individual engagements with other people, to not sum each other up and put each other in boxes <coughs> and, and think that we know what people, even what people's vote means, to think that that's absolutely right, I think. But the, I don't know, the, the, yeah. just the tremendous yeah. force of the way that, get, that all of that gets pulled up into this very damaging ideology that then does sure. have real yeah. effects in the world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah, if I could also say a word, and also this is in, in response to what Julia said as well, um, in response to Julia's comments about discomfort and David's comments, and then Stephanie's about the real effects. Um, 
you know, we were talking about building relationship, but, but I have to assume that the, the foundation for relationship is safety, a feeling of safety. Um, and uh, I think one thing that I have realized in the last few days is that in my own, you know, I, as I said, I'm half Japanese, but I also know, I've told students in my class, I recognize that, that I enjoy the privilege of a white man because of my appearance. Um, and I think that I realize that I've been mistaking or that I've been thinking about, um, how should I say this? That to be unsafe and to be uncomfortable are different things. And I have been uh, not, that, I, that in almost every space in this country, I am safe. In some spaces, I might be uncomfortable. But there are many people in this country, especially today, who are unsafe, right? And so I'm, I'm not talking about speaking for others or, or, or trying to steal away the voices of, of people um, who, who deserve their own. But when I think about this 81% of evangelicals or Christians in my congregation, you know, we didn't have a bunch of Trump voters in my congregation, but I, I bet we had a lot of people who didn't vote, right? Or who, right? Um, and I think I was talking before about the failure of my political preaching. Before, I think it's because I was not willing to be uncomfortable enough in my political preaching because I was a preacher in the classical preacherly mode that I was concerned to be eloquent or to be intelligent or to be faithful, right? Um, but I think this Sunday, I am going to be scared and I'm going to be upset and I'm going to, I'm not, right? I'm going to be uncomfortable in that space because, because discomfort is a privilege that I enjoy because of this body that I have in this culture. And for that reason, among these 81% of white evangelicals, many of whom I think you're right, I think I need to think about are people in my congregation that we can't draw conclusions about. I also have to take seriously that there are others who do not feel safe yeah. having that conversation. Yeah. And therefore, I have to be part. I have to start that conversation in, you know, in a serious way, in a way that, um, whereas, as, as, as you said, Julie, I have to, I have to run towards that discomfort in, order, in the hopes of just creating some safe spaces. For, for others who are mm. not safe. Mm. Thank you both. Any other comments from the RPP? Can we get them? Oh, you have the microphone. Um, yeah. My name is Waskito. I'm also part of the RPP working group. Um, I'm from Indonesia, but in 2008, 2009, when I was, in, was when I was a senior in high school in an Islamic boarding school back home, I was part of an exchange for student program conducted by the, the government of the United States itself. Um, it was actually um, um, founded by a Republican governor from Indiana. Um, so they basically sent a lot of students from Muslim majority countries, Saudi Arabia, even Oman, Yemen, and they sent those students to the United States to live with American family mm. and to be part of the community, not for two weeks, not for three weeks, for one year. That's what I did in 2008, 2009. Coming from Indonesia, as, an in, as a, a student of Islamic, uh, I went to traditional Islamic school, and I was placed in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I lived with a Christian, Baptist, Christian Southern Baptist family for a year. I went to church with them three times a week. Um, Bible study, um, uh, dinner, Christmas, Thanksgiving, everything. Um, people try to convert me on a weekly basis. <laughs> um, um, but what I noticed from my experience was that I was not American. Um, I was young. 
So when I came here, I did not see the Southern Baptist Christians as all the other. Mm. When I came here, hey, I want to be friends with you. Mm. I think that's what made me survive my life when I was in Charlotte for the whole year. Also, um, talking about you talking about the otherness of other people. I think when I came here, I did not have that feeling of otherness because I don't have the conception of what is a Southern Baptist Christians, what do, what do they believe, I don't have that. Um, and that helps me. However, by the end of the year, we, in the church, just a usual gathering, when my pastor would say like, yeah, all Christians are, uh, all Muslims are, are, are terrorists, of course, except Mosquito. <laughs> just me. But again, I was not offended or anything like that because I was young. I was just, want, I want to make friends, I want to build relations. and and. I was, my idea was like, what about just Harvard students go to churches and have a discussion like that? But then I worried about their safety. Mm. I'm worried about um, their feeling because I've been very careful, careful to talk about this issue because I might not have the sensitivity that Muslim Americans have because I myself is not American. In fact, I enjoy privileges being a Muslim back home. Mm. Um, so yeah, I always I can't I came here with an idea. Let's go to churches, let's have a dialogue. But then I think about it again. Is it even possible? Is it even safe for them? Mm. I spent a year and I don't think that anybody changed their mind. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else from the RPP working group? Um, both um, Professor Pastel and Professor Potts, both of you expressed that you failed, um, which is really powerful to hear. Um, but to me, it seems like the people that you failed or you feel like you failed maybe wouldn't have listened to you anyway. And so my question is, how do you reach people that are not willing to be reached, that you just don't have access to? I think, yeah, let me, I think, um, I, I have a lot of guilt about everything my class the last couple of days will know that I have a lot of guilt. And, and some of that is just kind of really practical, honestly. I, I mentioned this to Stephanie, I mentioned this to others in my class. You know, I'm from Michigan. I, on the day of the election, I plan to call uh, voters in the afternoon. And not even people, people who were Hillary supporters, right, that I wanted to go get to go vote. And I looked at the early numbers and I was like, oh, I don't need to vote. I don't need to call. I'll just go, right? Uh, go for a run, and um, and then you know today I heard this is probably the reason I was more depressed today than I was yesterday. Today I heard that the the numbers in Wayne County, Michigan, right, mm -hmm. who are not white evangelicals mostly. This is the the kind of the Detroit sits in. Mm -hmm. If the numbers in Wayne County had been even approached what Barack Obama had in 2008, 2012, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Democrats would have carried Michigan. And I don't know if this is true. I'm not Nate Silver, but if that was true in Detroit. It's probably at least partly true in Milwaukee and Philadelphia as well. So part of it was just like even that mild discomfort of calling people who are strangers who probably agree politically with me in many ways, but who it might have been a little bit uncomfortable, so that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, this is the more dramatic thing I talked about, this kind of preaching example. I mean, I'm not, I don't know, Stephanie and I were talking before this, this started. I was asking Stephanie, how do we do it? How do we reach out to um, our brothers and sisters in Christ? 
uh, who we have failed and who um, I feel some responsibility for engaging in productive conversation with so that there can, so that something more like safety and relationship can be built. And one of the ways I think, you know, I think about the people in my congregation who voted for Donald Trump or who did not vote. And it's clear to me that all my preaching was completely ineffective this last year, the political preaching I've, I've done. However, I also know, I've been part of this community for a long time. I've, I've buried their relatives. I know they love me. And I love them, in spite of how angry I am at some of them today. And I think that if I, this is what I'm saying, I think if I actually, I'm not, I'll let you know Monday, but when I preach this weekend and show them my broken heart instead of my political opinion or my smart brain, if I tell them that, that my sister-in-law is an Indian American and I'm scared for her right now, because she, she has family in Michigan and there have been attacks in Michigan. And then my mom, they're all, I mean, I didn't even think about this, but all, there have been all these attacks against Asian Americans today, which was not something I even considered before the election. And my, I'm scared for my mom. Mm -hmm. what, what would it be if what I had been preaching about for the last year for these people who love me was less, uh, was more uncomfortable, where I kind of, where I just bared my vulnerable heart the way that the, this Englishman did to you in that session, where I said, here is where my heart is broken, here is where I'm scared, here is where I'm grieving, and show this to these people in my community, I'm, maybe I would have reached them in a different way. Um, I don't know, but I, at this point, that, that's my plan for Sunday, and I'll tell you next week. And that is a starting point, and that's why I said grief is a starting point, a starting point to how do we develop a language by which we actually can communicate uh, with people, and I, that's where I'm going to start. I'd just like to... Um offer something on this issue of safety, you know, and comfort. See, I'm, my experience is that it's not safe to engage the other, the, the enemy. It's a risky business, you know. And, and, and a, lot of what, a lot of what happens in the, you know, is dialogue is, is very Pollyannish. There's the idea, you know, I'll... I'm, I'm whatever, you know, I'll talk to you, I'll tell you my story, you tell me your story, we'll humanize one another, we'll come, you know, and we'll make peace. I, I don't think it's, that's how it is. I think if, if, if dialogue is, is real, that if we enter dialogue truly with the, the, the other who represents this existential threat, we won't come out the way we went in. So that raises the question, well, what's at stake? What is it that we're holding on to so preciously? And what is it that we're afraid we lose if we truly, you know, risk engagement? So, so it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a delicate matter, you know, that, that we try and create these safe spaces, but fundamentally, the moment of in, you, you know, to, to truly engage, it's a dangerous undertaking in that sense. It's a threat to everything we hold on to, if it's real, you know. So I think we can open it up more widely now, and of course anyone, including in the RPP. And, uh, so if you could just say who you are, and, 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 um, and the, the, the briefer and more succinct our comments, the more that we'll get in, so thank you so much. Uh, my name is Evelyn. Um, I'm a first-year student here at Harvard, um, a, a graduate student. Um, I, I want to profess, like, what, before I say this, um, I want to apologize um, if, I, if I 
if I end up offending anyone in the room. Um, and I also am sorry for having to reiterate a lot of the stuff that I, I said um, in the morning with Professor Clooney in his gathering at the CSWR. Um, your election, um, US election, um, has, has incredible influence over the international community. Mm-hmm. Having come from South Korea, I am deeply concerned for the safety of my home country. I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I identify with the fears of a lot of the US citizens, even though it's not in the same context. Mm-hmm. But my godmother, um, as well as a, lot of, a great majority of my good friends, are Trump supporters. And I'll take great offense by anybody who calls them evil or stupid, because they are not. And I want you to take comfort in the fact that they're just how deeply human they are and just how good they are. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to offer that. Um, but I want to share a story. Um, I have been trying to s- persuade them to vote for Hillary Clinton because I knew that they had a heart and I knew that they had good intentions. This one particular friend, um, geographically speaking, and you know, from just she could ha- she, she just doesn't know a lot of this stuff that is going on in the states. Um, and when she was trying to learn about Muslim communities and African American communities, the amount of attack that she got, um, and just the name callings and just the immediate labeling that she she was under, um, that she was ignorant, that she was racist, just by not knowing. She told me the night before the election that she called me and said, Evelyn, I am so sorry, but I had to vote for Trump because even though Trump reminds me of this bully that I used to, used to deal with in middle school, the amount of bullying that I got from the Hillary Clinton supporters, easily Trump, you know, what, what she sees in Trump. So I just, I just want to offer that story. Um, but I'm, so I'm deeply sorry that I couldn't do enough and more to persuade my friends otherwise. Um, and I'm also sorry if my story offended anybody here. Um, but yeah, and thank you for this. And I, and I want to honor your insights. So thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Any other? Um, stop with the, the talk. Thank you for, very much for that. Uh, it seems like uh, the boarding school story is uh, the theme. <laughs> I went to a boarding school myself. The one thing I remember is the bad food. So I'm going to tell you something. I saw this uh, sign uh, online this morning. It says, pretty soon the poor will have nothing to eat but the rich. So this was the sign that was carried by a young lady at Boston Common uh, last night. So uh, I think we, should, we need to do two things. The first thing we need to do is damage control. And that we can do uh, as a community, we can do as individuals, but we do have to do damage control. Um, but the second thing we have to do is soul searching. And uh, maybe not so much reaching out to the other, but reaching within ourselves and reaching among ourselves and figuring out where can we improve ourselves first. Mm-hmm. I think this is really important because uh, when I see a sign like that, I wonder what percentage of the people are uh, of the rich are democratic and what percentage of the people are republicans, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So there's this general theme across board. So before we reach out to the other or try to engage the other, we have to engage within ourselves. 
Um, so I just wanted to share that. And But the main question I have is, um, how do we do the damage control? And how do we reach to groups like the police? I, For example, I read that they over astoundingly voted pro-Trump. And, and how can we have the police um, do damage control if they're maybe identifying with some of these actions that are happening out there now. So there's a practical side which needs to be taken care of as soon as possible. And then there's the other side which will take a long time. Uh, I hope to live long enough to see it resolved. <laughs> but it's, it's a long-term thing. Thank, Thank you. you. Any other comments? Questions? Can I respond? Or did one of the panelists, yeah, can we wait just a second? Yeah, Melissa? I appreciate all the comments, and I, I think, um, I think your question, but your comment about the personal work is a practical first step and an important first step, because I'd like to offer uh, that we reframe our way of discussing um, this topic and, 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 and even stop using the word other. You talked about language so beautifully. And I really appreciate what you, what you offered, the reminder of the fact that, um, and what, what Professor Potts offered, the reminder of the fact that, uh, uh, of who, they were all connected. And regardless of, of how we voted, we all have a heart, we all have fears, we all have concerns. Um, and the primary, I think the primary work for us, the place to begin is beginning within ourselves. And, and the spiritual practices, whatever that may be for us, um, that help us to regain our centering um, and reconnecting with ourselves, with spirit, um, and reconnecting with love. And from that place, going to the members of our congregation, going to members in our community who have different views, um, and, and going in that place of vulnerability um, really is where the transformation happens. Um, and I'm just encouraged by the uh, willingness to be brave and courageous to speak about these issues and be uncomfortable because it's not very comfortable as a black person to talk about racism and white supremacy in you know, <laughs> and, uh, these spaces. And, I, and I've been doing it. And I do it with courage, um, and 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 only can do it through the spiritual practice of prayer. And um, so I just am excited about the the motivation to be uncomfortable because it's, that's what it's going to take, and to be vulnerable. Thank you. I'd just like to add a, just a tiny bit to that in response, in part to what Randy asked, and also what you said about your your friends. Um, when, when I talk about failing, I, I'm not even talking about convincing uh, somebody who's going to vote differently from me, although that would be like an added bonus. But um, what I'm talking about is living my life available to, to lots of different kinds of people. I, I teach here. I go to a very progressive church. My daughter's in a progressive college. Um, but I grew up in a in a really conservative small southern town with sort of liberal parents. But parent, my parents were, they lived their lives with everybody, um, compassionately and lovingly, and arguing and you know um, 
discussing and disagreeing on some things and agreeing on some things. But um, but I, for when I'm talking, when I was talking about my failure, I I really <coughs> meant my failure even to be just available, like like asking myself, where do I go to church? Like there's other churches I can go to. There's there's other towns I could go to. You know what I mean? I, I just on a really basic level, um, Randy, the way you put it was, you know, why, you know, try to convince people who aren't going to be convinced. I, I think that's not the place to start, actually, although I think in this moment, you know, Matt, I want to preach your sermon. I, I um, you know, I think because of issues of safety, and I mean less the kind of existential safety you that you're talking about as like bodily, physical safety, I think they're just we have to stand up and we have to support and protect people who are made more vulnerable by the way people's votes, which are cast for all kinds of reasons, get um, used mm -hmm. and um, you know made use of by the forces and the powers that be. Um, but when I'm talking about myself, I just mean I need to get out, get out there more, get out more. <laughs> so. Uh, uh, yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Evan. I'm from the Ed School, and um, I think a, a common thread that has run through all of these comments has been the need for empathy. And a lot of most people who have experience with uh, contemplative or spiritual or inner practices um, are aware of how these things give rise to empathy. They make empathy possible. So, I guess it's a, a practical question of strategy maybe is how can all of the Harvard schools imbue their curricula and uh, with with these practices and values so a concrete example of that could be something like um, a class at the Kennedy School that would be mindfulness in leadership so you know take a minute to think about the implications of future leaders engaging in those practices it's pretty um, I don't know it's exciting so that that gives me hope that a project like that is possible, and I think there's a moral imperative to um, pursue that. So, if anyone wants to talk more about that, please see me after. I'm kind of working on it. Would you mention the initiative? Yeah, so there's an initiative. I guess I made the blog post yesterday, so I guess it, it, it exists. Um, uh, we're calling it the, the uh, uh, Harvard Inner Practices Project. And so the idea is we're trying to get students and anyone, faculty from all of the schools, um, to just to get together to build community around the shared interest of introducing these things to to the schools to build community, you know, enduring relationships where we go into our various sectors and uh, and really to to strategize very intentionally about how to bring these things into um, into the schools. So thank you. Thank you very much. We have time for two or three very brief comments. Jeff, did you want to say something or? Um, we have someone up here. And, um, yeah. My question is really um, about how to engage with uh, straight white men right now who don't understand that there's a problem. Um, um, there's just some people that they're like, well, it doesn't really bother me. It's not going to affect me. You know, the EPA thing kind of sucks, but other than that, it's just going to be four years, you know, suck it up. And I think there, you know, it's a, because of certain privileges, uh, 
there's a lack of empathy or understanding or even a willingness to um, engage. So I'm wondering if anyone has any advice for how to uh, crack that nut open a little bit, so to speak. Sorry, Liz, do you want to say something? Are you responding Are you? to that? Your okay. question was about how to engage with white men who have a lot of privilege. I, one of the things that, that's been really apparent to me for this whole election cycle is the role of toxic masculinity in all of everything that's going on. And I'm really grateful that so many alternative healthy models of masculinity are becoming promoted in our culture. But to me, it seems as though one of the most important things we can do as peace builders is to support and promote healthy models and uh, ideas of masculinity in our culture um, in as many ways as we possibly can. And once we do that, and once men don't feel as though to be a man means they have to be right when another people have to be wrong in order to keep their power, and um, then it will be a lot easier to engage men about their privilege without simply making them feel backed into a corner where they just feel defensive and like they can't even admit that they're acting from a place of privilege because that would be to display weakness and display a wrongness that feels like an existential failure because it feels as though they're not really being a successful man. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Lois Slavin. I'm from MIT, so um, that will give you a little bit of context of why I'm asking the question that I'm about to ask, which is, has anybody here thought about hacking? Hacking this solution for the problem, which, and um, which it's something we do a bit of at MIT. It's uh, inviting members of the community who are interested in a particular issue to come together and to define the problem. Just defining the problem can take a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And then having people break up in different groups to take a more a systems-based approach to how one could hack this very complex solution. Mm -hmm. Some people might engage in social media. Some people might uh, be from the business community and, uh, or the business school and be very interested in um, personal and organizational transformation. Some might be from the Dalai Lama Center at MIT who are interested in the, the spiritual piece. And believe it or not, Many are engineers mm -hmm. um, who basically um, are learning to think in new and different ways and to look down to the nitty-gritty of a partic the, a, the particular elements of a possible big-picture solution and then um, take it back up to a more global level. Mm -hmm. So I would really encourage people to think about that hacking approach. And um, hmm. I love this conversation. I, I really want to thank everyone, panel and the audience for, and the convener for um, 
offering this to the community. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. My name is Hassan Reyes. Uh, I'm with the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative. I'm a fellow this year. Uh, I've been reading a very interesting book uh, by Donna Hicks, Dignity. And I think that is a very powerful concept and provides for a strong platform to bring diverse people together irrespective of their political beliefs mm -hmm. because dignity is a concept that everybody understands. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, that can be a way forward in a highly <coughs> divided society and in a very bruised society if we try to see how we can use that powerful concept of dignity to uh, uh, have a common platform and a common uh, value that uh, everybody can share. Thank you. Yes. Um, yeah. I have to admit my head is swirling and my heart is aching. Um, uh, and I find everything that's going on incredibly disorienting. I, I just want to share two thoughts. One is, I, I think your specific question actually was, how do we relate to straight white men? Was that right? Yeah. Um, that made me remember the 2008 election when uh, my, <coughs> my gay brother and I were speaking to my father. Um, I grew up in a small town in rural Colorado. Um, uh, my family is very conservative. And we did manage to convince him to uh, vote for Barack Obama in that election, the first time he'd ever voted Democrat. And uh, um, he, although he voted for, uh, against Obama in 2012, um, uh, it was quite a remarkable moment, and the, the key was really not so much about talking, but it was about listening. Um, when he voted in 2012 against Obama, he voted for, um, uh, I, I really, in fairness and, and in the spirit of critique, I, I think it was a mix of values and tribal impulses in his case. Um, uh, but he did vote for Obama in 2008. Um, and uh, it was listening to his value orientation and uh, trying to build a bridge in conversation and through that listening and, under, and helping him see the ways in which his values uh, were, were actually being honored by uh, others that moved him to vote for Obama in 2008. So I, I just want to affirm I know it sounds Pollyanna, but the, 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 the importance of really deep listening. Yeah. And uh, the second thing I want to say is I know that our focus in this conversation is on uh, local and grassroots things. But uh, one of the things my head is spinning about and my heart is aching about is how, um, how the way we do politics has failed us. Um, it's a very obvious point. I found it very disorienting uh, today, although I know it's right and good. Uh, the last couple days, uh, Hillary's uh, concession speech, 
um, the words shared by Obama and Trump in their meeting today. In, I, I know it was, it's, it's right of them all to be doing what they're doing right now. Um, and I was really mad about it. Yeah. <laughs> because why, you know, just the flip is switched now. And, and we're in a different mode. And uh, it, it, not entirely. And yet there are riots in the streets. And, and, and terrible things are happening. What a failure of leadership to, for us all. I mean, I think of, you know, and I, I'm the, look, we can all have different views about this, and I'm, you know, I want to tend to be forgiving when Hillary made her deplorables comment or something. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's plenty of smugness yeah. on yeah. all sides. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and part of the problem with the way we do politics is all this sort of local level dialogue we're talking about, to, to take it up to the institutional level, um, I'm not so sure that our choice is between democracy and everything that's worse. There are different forms of democracy, more dialogical approaches to the practice of democracy that I think really need to be explored right now, like in the Republic of Ireland, where many uh, important policies are uh, shaped uh, not by debates uh, among legislators, but by legislators and citizens in diverse groups uh, developing pol policy proposals through listening before it's taken to a legislature for a vote. Mm. We need to get more creative, not just at the local level, but in ways that bridge up to the institutional level um, and, and extend that sort of deep listening to institutionalize it in, yeah. in certain ways. I yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I can just respond to that very briefly. I mean, I think <clears throat> one of the things that <clears throat> happened a little bit in, in, in Northern Ireland apropos of that is experimenting with ways of voting, for example, that were less, you know, how you can encourage more parties, how you can uh, use proportional representation to reflect a greater strata of views. Um, so there are ways in which um, even you know, creative thinking. I mean, I'm not saying this is going to happen here, obviously, but I agree with you that there, there, there are ways in which um, um, democratic expression, <coughs> excuse me, doesn't have to be this way, um, uh, which I think is what I was really getting at. But, um, no. Well, I think, I mean, I'm not, I, I, was, I, I don't live in Cambridge, but Cambridge has ranked choice <coughs> voting, right? And, and uh, Maine just passed a ranked choice voting uh, uh, ballot initiative. So I, I, so I, yeah, just to, that's just um, beside the point. But, but to your point, uh, Jeff, I, I think that's right. But I, I think that also the spirit of the question, um, it's about deep listening. But I think the other challenge, and this is the thing I'm really struggling with, and I'm not sure what practices that will be required, although I'm trying to learn how to cultivate them, is not just about my willingness to listen deeply to others, but how do I, what rhetorical strategies do I use to get somebody else to listen deeply to me? right who does not want to right and smugness has not worked that's i think you're right and i think right i think i was i was probably smug from the pulpit a little bit right and with people who may disagree with me and i think that I, if i want people to listen deeply to me right i i i'm willing to listen deeply to other I, I think i am where i want to be right now in the in the wake of this conversation and this event um but but i how do we develop rhetorical strategies ways of speaking where we we invite others open up others so that People who might not have expected it to be willing, or might not expect to be to want to, are suddenly able to listen deeply. 
to me also. That's the, that's, I don't know, that's the trick, but it, yeah. And part of my point is that that is, uh, we, we have not created an environment yeah. culturally where that, that can happen. It's yes. not being modeled at all yes. at the moment by anyone. Yes. Um, and some modeling could yes. help a lot. Right. Yeah. But I think, I think the answer is being available. I mean, it yeah. sounds like your father, you listened. I mean, you listened to him, and then he voted for President Obama. So providing that heart space, that availability, that connection, and you don't have to say, it's about, it's about being, it's not about saying anything, it's about being present, the ministry of presence. So that's, I think that's the strategy, being present with an open heart, and then letting go of the outcome. That letting go of the outcome point is so key. Yeah. Because yeah. if it's instrumental, mm. right. yes. Right, that's right. Yeah. Well, look, we're right, I'm afraid we're right out of time. I'm sorry. Um, um, I want to um, uh, thank our panel for really a, a terrific job. Thank you for modeling a great conversation. Thank everyone in the audience for um, really respecting what we set out to do tonight. I thought it was really a, a great evening for our community, so thank you so much. Um, I have a few announcements, if you can bear with me just a few seconds. Um, the Harvard Coop will have some of the books assigned for the session on sale in the lobby. Our next RPP colloquium is an important one on December 1st. <clears throat> it will be a collaboration with the TT. T.H. Chan, Harvard School of Public Health, FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, on the topic of religion and the rights of protection of children and humanitarian crises, the case of Syria. Um, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Baba of the FXB Center and two Syrian active and humanitarian efforts with children will share their insights on this urgent issue, and we hope you'll join us for that um, special occasion. <clears throat> if you haven't yet done so, be sure <clears throat> excuse me, to sign up for the RPP mailing list to receive our announcements of our forthcoming events. And if you hear about upcoming events at Harvard or in the local area on religions and the practice of peace, please email the information to us so we can post them in the upcoming events section of the RPP website. Speaking of um, events, um, Tronny, could you briefly uh, say what, um, uh, make your announcement? Thank you. Yep, I, I'm just going to invite you to an event that um, I hope that some people will come because, honestly, we've all been flailing about, and I, I don't know about you at Harvard, sometimes maybe some of you might spend too much time in your intellectual space, <laughs> you know? No. This is a time to get into your body and actually do something that I think will help bring you healing. Tomorrow at the Islamic Society of Boston in Cambridge, then I'm going to be handing out flowers to the worshipers as they exit their prayer meeting. Um, they've given me their permission, they're thrilled. I've done this before, I started this project. Um, and right now it's just me, and it tends to be very well received, and it tends to be an incredible blessing. If you're grieving right now, then I think you should especially do this because it, it, the positive energy that you'll take from it will help you for a very long time. And I also wanna just add that the reason that I started this project is specifically to live the idea that love is a force, not a sentiment, and that the only thing that can overcome hate is love, and that I don't want to just post about hate crimes on my Facebook feed. I want to actually 
not seed the battlefield, but retake it with public acts of love that offer a different narrative so that when people see it, they're drawn to it and they want to join it and they want to say, yeah, I want to be like that. Look at how happy they are. Look at how blessed they are. That's how I want to be. And it, it will make you feel vulnerable a little bit if you're not used to that. But and, you know, if the, the Hughes and the Davids of the world had never been willing to get together, Northern Ireland would still be a war zone. And I, if the RPP wants to kind of join this project I've started and actually make it something that puts into practice a lot of the things we've been talking about and thinking about for a long time, that would be fine with me. And I would love to meet with Republicans and Trump voters. I would love to.